live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back, my friends. Thank you for joining us tonight. This is Yona. You are on the road to recovery this evening. It's a two-hour ride. And uh, buckle buckle in because we're going to be here for a while. We will stop along the way so you can use the bathroom and get a snack. But uh, we expect you to jump right back on and continue on the road with us. Uh, on the bus today, we have uh, Devon, who's going to uh, work uh, work the uh, board and make sure I don't uh, miss all my marks and such. And we have Corey uh, Manuel, who is in the background uh, taking calls this evening and sort of overseeing everything to make sure that we don't mess up. So thanks for joining us. We know you have other choices, and we're glad that you chose us. And tonight we're going to talk about all kinds of really cool stuff. Um, In the first section, we talk about stuff mostly related to kids, because hopefully parents might introduce your kids to what we're talking about. If it's appropriate, say, hey, hang on a second, come in here and listen to this guy. So we try to do that between 9 and 10 o'clock so that it's more available to those kids that should be in bed by 10 but who knows right these days you never know when your kids are going to go to sleep that's the problem the problem is that there's a whole sleep thing going on right there's been a sleep thing going on for a long long time and now the university of western ontario they've done some research uh, and they're studying studying whether teaching teens to improve their sleep uh, can uh, help with symptoms of things like borderline personality disorder and testing whether intervening early can stop the progression of the condition itself uh, by uh, looking at sleep patterns and the ability to sleep or not sleep as it relates to that. So if you've got teenagers or have ever, you know, raised teenagers or had them stay over at your house for sleepovers or, you know, or was it you were a teenager, uh, give me a call right now, 416-870-6400 or uh, toll-free 888-225-8200. Five five. We'd love to hear from you. Um, talk to me about your sleep, whether it's you know what when you were a kid, uh, what it was like. You know, it's you know for kids, it's tough to sleep. They just have so much going on. They're on their phones to late hours. That blue screen stuff really affects them. Uh, has an effect on their REM sleep, whether they can actually get some really good sleep or not. Um, so we're finding now with this research. Uh, the, the research teams recruit that right now. They're recruiting fifty teens to study the value of sleep training. Uh, as it relates to borderline personality disorder, which is a not a, it's a very uh, compromised uh, mental health disorder for people that have it, a uh, mental health condition that affects how patients think about themselves and others. Uh, it causes instability and difficulty in any kind of relationship. Uh, borderline personality disorder is really uh, very. Um, it's one of those invisible things that uh, that you see. It doesn't necessarily lead to things like cutting, but it can. So it's hard to see in kids uh, until you realize, you know, whether it, they're actually being defiant or whether, in fact, they have issues. So, you know, it, it's a bad night's sleep uh, can really impact anyone's functioning, right? So especially someone with borderline personality disorder. So they're going to experience, uh, like, if I haven't had a good night's sleep, I don't have borderline personality disorder. I have ADD, OCD, and anxiety disorder. My OCD is very, very uh, light in terms of others, and my ADD is, uh, I don't know, it's getting a little worse as I get older, but we certainly control it. And my anxiety disorder is pretty much in check. But um, I can't, So I can't, you know, I can't relate to the personality disorder portion of this experience, but I do understand what it means to experience cognitive fog, uh, feeling more irritable, um, obviously leads to conflicts with people in your family, according to Aaron Kaufman. Uh, an assistant professor of clinical psychology at Western and the principal investigator in this study. 
And they go on, she goes, they go on to say somebody who already has symptoms of uh, BPD, borderline personality disorder, developing uh, and is also getting poor sleep can potentially amplify the symptoms they're already experiencing. As an adult, I know, I think think I'm an adult, at least by years anyway. My wife says often I don't act like one. But uh, as an aside here, so, you know, we're finding that kids and, and adults alike, people that don't sleep well, including me, uh, wake up in a miserable mood. You know, if I haven't had a good night's sleep, if I'm tossing and turning for whatever reason and getting up to use the bathroom way too often and whatever, uh, I wake up in the morning, I don't feel rested, and I'm irritable. I can only imagine what that's like for a teenager in general. And then to layer over that a, um, a disorder like a borderline personality disorder. So um, anyone who's got – so right now they're accepting students, they're accepting youth uh, 13 to 18 uh, in this study. They're actually going to pay for it. We'll get that in a minute. And um, they're looking for people that have been diagnosed with that, with BPD, borderline personality disorder, and who have three or more symptoms of the condition, So, which include mood changes, impulsivity, anger, stormy relationships, feeling of emptiness or dissociation, and suicidal ideation or self-harm. So I can tell you I know at least 10 kids right now that I see in my practice that have those symptoms and do not have borderline personality disorder. They have other situations, other diagnoses. So um, it's kind of mix and match here, right? But the team received funding for the pilot, and they've made, it's been very difficult to, retune, to, re, to recruit teams, they say. Um, they've only got eight kids enrolled so far of the 50. They've been recruiting for over a year. It's been incredibly challenging. So they're hoping to get more referrals from clinicians. And, and uh, but they, they, the study goes on to say the problem is now that clinicians are so burnt out in their own practices that they don't necessarily have the bandwidth uh, to talk to potential participants about the study is the quote-unquote quote unquote. Borderline personality disorder can be difficult to manage. The gold standard treatment involves intensive and regular therapy uh, by specialized trained professionals, something not available to everyone. Uh, the study says it, it takes a huge amount of investment on the part of both the therapist and the client. That's a fact. So I do work with patients that have borderline personality disorder, and it is a very lengthy, involved therapeutic relationship, six months at a minimum, usually a year. Um, but anyway, the participants here are going to fill out surveys. They're going to wear a sleep monitoring uh, headband during parts of the study. Uh, they're also going to wear something, uh, some device that they wear on their wrist to help us identify studies and so on. Uh, they're going to pay for this, right? They're going to pay people to um, participate in this study. And if the pilot leads to something, uh, they're going to go from there and uh, you know, blow this up into a real research project. Not sure how much they're going to pay. It doesn't really go on to say. But you know a kid that's looking to you know, make a few bucks and maybe get some help with their borderline personality disorder, their borderline personality disorder. Um, for more information, sign up. You can call or email uh, MAP, M-A-P-P, Paul Paul, Lab, MAP Lab, at uwo.ca, or you can make the phone call, 519-661-2111, extension 88360. That's to get some young person, if you know any, that uh, teenagers, I think, what they say, uh, 13 to 19, 13 to 20, something like that, um, if they're interested, they make a few bucks and maybe get some help and learn something about sleep because they're going to teach them a bunch of stuff too, right? They're going to teach them a bunch of things about sleep. And, and that's one of the things we do in therapy and both my outpatient program and inpatient program. Uh, sleep is a big part of it. Sleep, uh, nutrition, and exercise 
are a big part of our programs. Uh, the non-therapeutic pieces, obviously, in terms of direct therapy. Uh, but, uh, yeah, man, sleep makes a big difference for kids and for adults. But anyway, I'll tell you what's going on with kids. Uh, this hybrid instruction system that they're having, they're, they're, they're involved in at Peel School isn't working. It's causing a lot of trouble for kids and for parents and for teachers. When we come back, we're going to talk to some expert, an expert about that in terms of someone who understands kids and uh, figure out what's going on and whether this thing is going to work or whether it's making more of a mess than not. Yonabud, 640, Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, keep your arms in. Don't stick your hands outside the window on the bus here on the Road to Recovery. Thank you, Beth, for joining us and coming back and uh, getting some more of our stuff here that we're prepared to share tonight. Yona Bud here is your, I am your host this evening. We're in the studio with Devon and Corey. And uh, the road to recovery tonight is going to take us through a bunch of different places. We're going to talk, now talk about some stuff related to kids, uh, as we do in the first hour. Uh, and if you haven't heard about the show and you're joining for the first time, we're talking about helping people and people helping other people. Open board, you can give us a call, 416-870-6400, and uh, we'd be glad to talk to you about related subject matter. We have a guest who's going to join us here in just a second, uh, but the conversation we're going to have is really about this hybrid instruction that's harming students in Peel. And they're going on to talk about this hybrid instruction, which I believe is the concept of kids in school and some out of school. Teachers are having a really hard time. They're trying to keep the, to keep the, uh, the interests of the kids in class, at the same time trying to keep track of the kids outside of the class that are joining virtually. Uh, they're losing the kids electro- on the electronic side. They're losing some of the kids in the, in the classroom itself. Uh, the hands-on experience is difficult to re- re- recreate, the teachers are saying, in certain subject areas. It's becoming a mess. These, and these classes are two and a half hours long, uh, and then, you know, they're on for a week, and then they change something the following week, so the kids really aren't, students really aren't getting the stuff. Teachers aren't around to give them some extra help like they need, and the teachers that would normally be around for all these extracurricular stuff, these things that kids need to do for, you know, for their health and wellness uh, aren't able to do it because they're busy preparing for classes and doing all kinds of things in the evening uh, to get ready for this hybrid education model. My guest this evening is our good friend, Bonnie Sue Solomon. She's a master's in social work. She's a psychotherapist, has a lot of experience working with kids, a good friend of the show, good friend of mine, and just an all-around keen person to talk to about this kind of stuff. Bonnie Sue, welcome to the show again. Thank you, Yana. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you so much. Um, and we tried to get you on as early as possible, not to interfere <laughs> with the things you might have to do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So this hybrid, this hybrid learning model, um, it's a real thing, or is this kind of mashed together and we're going to see it go away soon? Um, that's a big question. Um, but for like you mentioned, and for those who don't know, so really hybrid learning is the, de- it's the delivery of in-person and online education, and it's two groups of students, so sim- simultaneously. So Teachers, like you mentioned, are teaching uh, both groups at the sa- very same time, which is which is which is really problematic because students aren't getting the attention that that they deserve, and teachers are also, um, you know, it's 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 very challenging for teachers as well. But the but if we're talking about the impact on on young people, then there's definitely an impact, and there's the impact. Um, what I'm seeing is definitely in their mental health and increase in anxiety and depression, and in their general uh, well-being. And it's directly related to this learning model. Like you mentioned you know, before, much longer classes and, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, 
No, you were saying I, I, did, I didn't mean to cut you off, but the the you were, I want to jump back for a second. You know, the impact it has on teachers, even though we're talking to, right now about the impact it has on kids. If teachers are, I mean, you know, you spent years and years and years yeah. in schools, um, but you know, if teachers are, are are impacted in a negative way, it's clearly going to have an impact on the quality of work that they do with the kids. No, for sure, for sure, it's definitely gonna it's it's definitely gonna have an impact. And um, they, I mean, they can't be too, they, it's, it's, they, they can't, they, they just don't, they, there's not enough, uh, they need more support and more resources and it's, it's not happening. And it's, uh, and the, um, and the students are suffering because again, and especially the ones that need, need, need more help than others. So students, for example, that, you know, um, need extra, extra help they might have some extra learning care. difficulties. Yeah. yeah. And uh, like you said, also in terms of extracurricular activities, those aren't happening. Those aren't happening either because, there's not enough. Uh, there's not enough time. Teachers are busy doing all the other things, and um, so students are missing out on that too. The ones that are, are the ones that are in school. So it's um, definitely, like you mentioned, that students are feeling really. Also, I think a lot of students from from last year are having a hard time catching up and and just feeling really, really lost and not feeling very confident, not feeling very smart because they're not caught up, and very difficult um, to engage, um, especially the ones that are. You know, at home, online, it's difficult to engage. Uh, they can get distracted, and students are getting very frustrated and and really tired, exhausted, burnt out. So you have a uh, so the impact is really, uh, as you can hear, that's um, there's a lot of negative, a lot of negative uh, effects of this uh, of this model. You know, we're and, finding even with we're finding with virtual uh, uh, support groups like we're running at the farm, or you know, other organizations have support groups for mental health and so on. Uh, but we're also finding in support groups that, you know, people that are, you know, zooming in because that's what we're doing four or five of those a week. People are zooming in. You know, the, there's a lot that participate, but then there's two or three that are distracting. And when you have them in a, when you, you know, as you know, when you have them in a live group, it's easier because you can deal with the with the distractors. It's hard though. Right. It's hard to do that uh, in a virtual class. So if you got a kid kind of playing with his nose and playing with his hair and you know, kid, you know, jumping up and down from his chair uh, from his bedroom, and you've got a bunch of kids in class all trying to pay attention at the same time, um, this is set up to be a disaster in terms of you know um, everyone's well-being. So what was what yeah. do you think? I mean, I, I can only ask you to guess, but what do you think that you know what was the thinking behind the design of this model, and you know why didn't they just separate online learning perhaps from in class learning as opposed to trying to double dip and get the most out of their teachers? I think it's an economic thing, right? I think it's an economic thing, but also it's you know trying to keep kids and community safer and giving some some choice, some freedom. I think it it also gives some flexibility. I mean, there are some, there are some good things uh, with it as well. So it's not all negative. So I think the question now is what to do, given the fact that this is the model right now, how do you make it work for, for students and how do you make it work for teachers? And I know we're talking about kids tonight. So it's really important for, um, for young people, for students to speak, to, to speak up, to like to speak to a school counselor or a teacher if they're having problems navigating the new schedule or having difficulty managing their mental health. So it's really important to, you know, to really uh, get in touch with resources and supports. Um, so the schools really need to, need to make sure that there's enough of those around that students are getting the support they need. And, and also families, um, if, if, if um, students are lucky enough at home to have uh, people to support them at home. So it's really, really important to have supports. Um, and also, you know, self-care. Definitely. So, um, so in terms of, um, yeah, so we need to definitely make, we need to make sure that students have access to the resources and supports that they need to succeed. So I don't think it's, 
I don't think that I don't think that online learning is a bad thing, and I don't think that in school learning is a bad thing. I think when they're happening simultaneously, they're happening at the same time. I think that's where the problem is, because I know, and I think you know that we do a lot of our work. We do a, a lot. Most of us are doing our work virtually, and I think it's yeah. really um, it's been very effective and successful. And I, you know, I do my ther- therapy counseling all day um, on online, and it's very very successful. And it's and there's and, and it's it's great in terms of people, you know, having access, uh, easier access. And so I think there's a lot of great things. I think the problem is that it's happening at the same time, and that um, the students are not getting the attention that they deserve because. The teachers are having to be there for the students in class and for the students at home. So I think that's what makes it difficult. So it's not each of them are, are not they're, they're not bad. It's when they're happening together that becomes very challenging. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I would and I would suggest that I don't know if you're running any groups these days, but uh, I've run a couple of group. I run a couple of groups a week. Uh, much harder. To, I, the one on one virtual stuff is is brilliant. I, I, I totally on side with you. Mm. Running a group of 10 or more, not so easy, um, at least for me. No. Uh, of course, I got ADD anyway, so it's hard. To, <laughs> it's hard to keep track of all the boxes yeah. on the screen. But uh, yeah. yeah, so I get it, and and I think, and and I and I'm with you 100. percent I think the virtual model makes sense. I think the in class model makes sense. I think the problem is when you try to put a duck and a and, and a and a, a goose together, it doesn't come out right. And um, right. I think that's For what we're sure. doing. So, so yeah. let's um, let's let's move away from the from this for a minute. I want because I have you only for a little while longer. I want to talk about something else here. Um, talking about kids having fun and parents navigating the pitfalls of planning their lives around the, this whole pandemic, you know, social uh, restrictions and so on. Uh, the first first question I have for you is, you know, what signals can a parent look for? Uh, when they when they're looking to see if their kid is unhappy. In other words, you know, it's one thing when they're complaining and they're and they're they're obviously you know they're they're overt or obvious about their dissatisfaction, yelling, screaming, punching the walls, whatever, um, doing some kind of behavior, providing some kind of behavioral uh, trigger or, or or indicator. But what ha- what are we with the quiet ones? How do you know if they're okay and if if you know? if they're doing all right, like if they're, if they're just kind of sitting in silence or, you know, they need help. Right. Well, before we go into that, you know, as you, as you were talking, I'm thinking about um, the parents. I think that um, I think parents who worry excessively about um, what their kids are missing out on is likely more damaging than, than, than than their kids missing out on those experiences that they're worried about. So I think parents, I think we need to start with parents. Parents need to let go of their anxiety about temporary social uh, deprivation and not to catastrophize it or panic about it. Um, So I think it really needs to start there that, um, and that really to take comfort also in the value of relationships in the home. I know it's, I think definitely socialization, social interactions are, are key and a really important part of development throughout childhood and spending time with peers. But really, kids are resilient, they're adaptable, um, and there's definitely, there's, I think it's important and for kids to get out, but also the parents need to um, also realize that it's, um, that I think their anxiety could be more damaging than, than, the, than the lack of social interaction. Um, but in terms of your question, um, checking in, checking in and asking questions um, and don't assume. And uh, maybe that's something, maybe parents might be assuming one thing and maybe they're, maybe, maybe it's something very, very different. So definitely checking in. And if they can't check in, then possibly if, if they have to trust their gut, if they're having any concerns to try to get support for their, for their child, whether it's uh, through their doctor or school uh, social worker or therapist. 
And um, so I'm definitely checking in and, um, and um, yeah, but definitely in, in, to encourage safe fun. Um, okay. We, we, so, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. We have, we've only got a minute left. I didn't mean to cut you off a minute. Well, I, I'm just trying to manage it here. We've got a minute left. Real quick, what, what role is fun play in a kid's life? Like so, psychologically, not, you know, not, not the other uh, stuff, but psychologically. I mean, it's fun is a big part of it, right? Right, but definitely to have fun and also just to get away from there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. So distraction, any distraction, and fun can be mean something very different for from from for each kid. So, um, so but yeah, so I think it's really important to to be uh, to get away from from some of the stresses that uh, that kids are facing. You say something to do it in a safe way. So and, and you know to make sure the kids are wearing masks. Maybe they need to have more supervision these days. So they keep those masks on. Encourage outside play days. Keep you know wash their hands. No contact sports. Um, and also to do you know also things could also happen in the home. Like they could still have social interactions. Maybe not with friends, but with siblings. And um, and also there's also online social interactions as well that they can do games and really try to be creative. And, um, Bonnie, Bonnie Sue Solomon, she's uh, just really great at her job and a great person to talk to. Thank you for joining us. We're going to have you back again for sure. You have a great rest of your evening. And Thank you, um, thanks for uh, making yourself available. As soon as we come back uh, from break here, we're going to talk about trouble sleeping from an adult perspective and what you can do with uh, devices. I got a device. I wear it. I'm going to share that with you when I get back. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona. I will be your host this evening, and thank you so much for joining us. Give me a call right now. I want to talk to you about your sleep. I'm going to tell you about mine. We're going to listen to you about yours. 416-870-6400 or long distance, 888 225-8255. Uh, I want to hear about you and your sleep. Is it something that's working out for you, not working out for you? We're talking about adults, kids, anybody who wants to listen. Um, so the, there's there's a landmark study that links mental health, uh, mental illness, and restless nights. And, and we kind of touched on that a little bit earlier, a few segments ago, as we were talking about sleep as it relates to children or teenagers, maybe not children, teenagers. Um, but the battle to get a good night's sleep is a familiar one for lots of people. So I want to hear from you. 416-870-6400. You just find yourself tossing and turning. You know, they get the pillow. You move the pillow from the right side to the left side and stick one under your legs. And, you know, the pillows, the, the blankets aren't right. You kick your leg off. You just can't get that comfy feeling of, OMG, I want to sleep, but I can't. Right? So those that that frustration that comes from uh, that feeling from, from feeling like that leads to some pretty uncomfortable uh, mental health uh, situations and can actually lead to some serious mental health issues if you develop something known as insomnia, which can carry on for, you know, carry on for, for, for years and really make have an impact on you. So <clears throat> with the help of advancements in sleep tracking technology, a team of Canadian scientists determined that sleep troubles are very common symptoms amongst uh, of mental health illness, regardless of diagnosis. So the revelation shows that the sun shines a new light, if you will, on the two-way relationship between quality of sleep and overall mental health. So let's take a break here for a minute. I wear something on my on my finger. My children bought it for me a year or so ago for my birthday. My birthday is going to be in a little while, so a year or so ago in my, on my birthday. I'll let you know when my birthday is so everybody can send me gifts. Uh, but right now you can call me, 416-870-6400. Let's talk about this. So I wear something on my finger called an aura ring. 
I don't wear it on my, I don't wear a wrist uh, tracker because I wear different things on my wrist and it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, fit. I wear a watch. I wear different uh, types of uh, chakra beads and things that I find uplifting and supportive for me. But right now I'm looking at my aura app and it's telling me that tonight I need to get to sleep between 1045 and 1145. And if I go back to my sleep scores, like no kidding, I can tell you from the time I got this ring till now, because it keeps a track, keeps track of it, what my sleep scores are day after day, night after night. So, for example, a couple of days ago, uh, I had a really lousy night's sleep, let's say on Monday, and my sleep score was, no, nah, it wasn't so bad, so bad. So maybe Wednesday was a worse day. So Wednesday, my sleep score was uh, not great, was in the was in the high 60s, right? Not, not great. My sleep score now, uh, last night, uh, my sleep score was, uh, where were we? Last night, my sleep score was 86. So I get a crown. So this thing tells me my blood pressure, my total amount of sleep. It tells me I, last night I slept eight hours and 24 minutes. My time in bed was nine hours and 52 minutes. Yeah, I was just lying there a little bit, being a little lazy. Um, and that my, my sleep efficiency was 85%. It tells me my resting heartbeat. My total sleep was eight hours and 24 minutes, as I said. Uh, tells me to pay attention to my restfulness because I was tossing and turning. But I had an hour and 27 minutes of REM sleep and an hour and 43 minutes of deep sleep. And um, my, if you look at this device, if you look, it's all on my phone, by the way. This is spitting out stuff onto my phone, downloading stuff to my phone so that I can keep track of my sleep. Um, so it tells me my movements, how many times I got up to use the bathroom, or how many times I tossed and turned. There were a lot. So I was actually awake for an hour and 28 minutes through my sleep process. tells me about my heart rate, was at 58 uh, BPMs, and uh, my average... Um, the other one, my average uh, blood pressure uh, wasn't bad either. So uh, there are devices. So what we're trying to do now is we're trying to use these devices to start looking at our sleep patterns. It makes a difference for me. I tell you for sure. I can tell you that I, I, when I wake up in the morning, if I've had a not a, a great night's sleep, um, that it will impact my mental health for sure, my anxiety for sure, uh, my OCD not so much, my ADD for sure. So my attention deficit. Really, I can see it if I'm not rested. I can really feel it. Uh, but my anxiety, absolutely. So with the advancements of these technologies, uh, we're starting to look at stuff. So I would recommend, if you're able to afford it, some kind of tracker that obviously keeps track of everything else, but sleep is a big part of it because it leads to really bad stuff, man. Some people find that uh, low sleep you know, creates uh, signs of, of uh, borderline personality disorder, uh, schizophrenia, you know, hearing voices. Um, uh, and there was like 89,000 participants in this study, by the way. And uh, Michael Mack, he's a staff psychiatrist at CAMH. He focuses on sleep medicine. So he's you know, looking at this stuff. Before, you wouldn't be able to get all this information other than from people sleeping in a lab with equipment that attached to them. But now with these devices... We're able to, to, to find information, compile information from people who sleep at home, uh, which is where you should be sleeping, in my opinion. Um, but anyway, it makes a big difference. If you can keep track of your sleep, get an idea of how you're feeling, um, and we can, uh, and we can uh, from that, you, you, can, you can adjust, right? You adjust your sleep patterns. Go to bed a little bit earlier. Last night I went to bed you know, a little bit earlier than normal, maybe 45 minutes earlier. Um, I didn't eat much, you know, I try not to snack before going to bed. So I didn't eat much before going to sleep. I had a solid sleep. I had to get up a few times because I'm just at the age where you get up a few times, but a lot of tossing and turning because my legs and back, my back issues. Uh, but you know, I had a much better sleep, woke up in a much better mood than, you know, I do on days when I don't. 
So insomnia is a big problem. And cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, all kinds of sleep-related therapies um, are available. And uh, we suggest that you look at them. But the first thing to do is keep track of your sleep. If you don't have one of these devices, try to keep a pad of paper beside your bed and make a little tick or a mark like, you know, like someone who's, God forbid, in jail and keeps track of how many days on the wall. So just keep a little tick of how many times you get up through the night. Um, get an idea of what time you went to bed. Just write down the time you, you went to sleep. You know, you don't have to be asleep, but in, in bed and the time you got out of bed. Um, so you can actually make this work if you can't find something like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or the Aura Ring that I'm wearing. Uh, and the technology costs are coming down all the time. Uh, even from the time that they bought this ring for me a year or so ago till now, costs have uh, gone down uh, substantially. I mean, not a lot, but enough that it starts to make it more and more um effective to use this type of technology. This is another great article from Nadine Youssef. Uh, she's that Toronto-based reporter that I've been chasing for over a year, try to get on my show, but she keeps ducking us for whatever reason. I don't know, but she does a great job of uh, profiling this kind of stuff. When we come back, we're going to talk about some more stuff, and it's good stuff for a change. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back, my dear friends. Thank you for joining us tonight. It's uh, around 943. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, animals, pets, seniors? If you don't know where they are, you should probably call 911 if you think they might be in some kind of danger. Or if you need some help, you can give us a call here right now, 416-870-6400. You can call me anytime, by the way, 877 Seven 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 five eight zero eight. We have uh, people always standing by to take crisis calls for me, or just get me uh, lined up with people that want to talk. So please feel free to give me a call at any time. You can also send a message here to Road to Recovery at six forty Toronto dot com. We'd love to hear from you and um, get some information or any ideas you have for better shows, shows that you prefer to hear than the ones you're listening to. I'm glad to to jump in there. So this is a really good story, and I get to share it with one of my good close friends. Who we normally get him on to talk about shootings and deaths and ugly stuff going on in neighborhoods. His name is Marcel Wilson. He's the founder of One by One Movement, um, and he's joining us tonight as a guest um, and great friend, brother of mine. Marcel, welcome to the show once again, and uh, excited to share uh, this story with you tonight. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me, Anna. My Always pleasure. So it's yeah, man. It's nice to have a win. So uh, we're talking about the Delano Banton story. Uh, this is a kid that grew up in Rexdale and uh, ended up uh, being drafted uh, to play basketball for the um, for the Raptors. And uh, he's directly from, he's, I think, the first kid, right, uh, Marcel? I think the first kid to come out of that neighborhood and go right to the NBA? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first Canadian to be drafted by the Raptors also. Amazing, yeah, good amazing. Amazing. So uh, they talk about his friends at the Rexdale neighborhood, the Albion Boys and Girls Clubs, former teammates and so on. They go on to talk about him a little bit. Uh, he made basketball history, as you were just saying. <clears throat> but he grew up, you know, he was one of the, he grew up in Kipling and Finch area and uh, was part of that Rexdale community hub. Um, so I, I really want to kind of focus a little bit on that for a second, because uh, it's a great story and, and um, something we should springboard from. These hubs work, right? Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. They definitely work when the, when they're properly ran and they're properly funded. Uh, they definitely work. Um, just so some of the challenges sometimes can be uh, some of the things we're facing right now is, you know, there there's kids that want to get out there. There's kids that want to be involved in programming. 
Um, but due to the temperature of, of uh, specific areas, sometimes it's a little bit dangerous for them to get uh, to and from these hubs. So that's something we're working on, something we're trying to get figured out. You're talking about the safety of actually traveling from, you know, home to a hub and have to go through areas where perhaps, when you say temperature, meaning hot neighborhoods where there may be some bad stuff going on. Is that what we're talking about? Oh, absolutely. Uh, sometimes we have areas, man, where, where, you know, you have to cross through one or two, uh, what we call, you know, what they refer to as opposition op neighborhoods uh, just to get to that, you know, center to play ball, that center to join some positive programming. You know, I, I, you know, our good friend Patrick Shaw, I know you know him well, and uh, he runs a, a program at Falstaff, and a good friend of mine, a good friend of, of yours as well, I know. Uh, but I remember Patrick and I were talking years ago about some kids. We were working on a program together with, for basketball, and we were talking about some kids going from his place up to Finch and uh, Finch and somewhere. And, you know, and then, you know, the youth worker, um, as a matter of fact, you know him. Uh, what's his name? Uh, oh. Anyway, big tall guy. Uh, name escapes me. Yeah, DT, I'm sorry. Um, so DT was, you know, he, he was rolling his eyes. And he's like, what's up, brother? I'm like, what's going on? He said, dude, these guys just, these kids just can't go from here to there. They got to cross over a couple of gang neighborhoods and then may not arrive alive. And it never dawned on me, right? It just never dawned on me. So may talk about that a little bit in terms of what it takes to, to actually, you know, keep these kids safe in terms of getting them even just from place to place to run a good program. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the, the, public at large don't really realize how much of a champion uh, Delano is. Um, the the challenges that he had to face in order to stay disciplined and, you know, be able to get to those uh, centers and, and stay out of the mix of things, uh, there's just a plethora of, of a mountain of challenges that, that a lot of these youth have to face, even the ones like Delano, who were focused and had a lot of dedication. So, you know, unfortunately, Delano is a an anomaly, and what we'd like to see is many more uh, like him. And what we're seeing is that he is a beacon of hope. Um, he has inspired quite a few young people across the city, especially in his neighborhood in the Mount Olive area. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of youth now really believe in themselves and are really thinking like, "Hey, this is doable. This is something yeah. I can do." But yeah. the hard work and dedication he put in, astronomical. So when you when you drill down through the story, it, it clearly talks about um, he moved, or he says he grew up in his grandmother's home in north side of Rexdale after getting dropped off by his father in the summertime. So it, it would appear that he was raised, in this article, raised by his grandmother and his uncle. Um, they moved him to, it sounds like mom lived in a house. She had a basement. Uh, grandma, excuse me, lived in a house. She had a basement. That's how he got attached to his Jamaican heritage. The article goes on to say, so here's a situation where really this kid's raised by a community, not the mom and dad and for whatever reason, and, and that doesn't really matter. But uh, got hooked up in his, in his grandmother's neighborhood. His uncle Dennis got in with him, and, and they just made sure this kid was focused, and he played ball across the street forever, and they took him everywhere, and, you know, grandma would know when he was home and not home it makes a difference when there's someone who gives a damn and paying attention right or excuse me let me rephrase that because i don't want to be cast aspersions on on certain families who have the time to give a damn and focus on the kids needs absolutely man it makes all the difference um and you know when you see similar stories to this unfortunately they're far and few in between but when you when you see them there's a similar narrative you know there there is a strong uh, support mechanism behind the youth 
And, you know, there, there were people making sure he was eating right. There were making, people making sure he was getting to his, uh, you know, his workouts. Uh, supposedly he was working out up to three times a day, you know, and yeah. didn't really get to spend as much time with his family that most people do. So right. that's actually the linchpin. Without that, you know, it's near impossible. So is that the challenge? Is the challenge really, I mean, we talk about lots of reasons why we are where we are with this mess that we're dealing with in our, in our neighborhood and certainly I'm sure neighborhoods around the world, but right now dealing with our neighborhood is how much of a role, um, or let me rephrase the question. What, what are you doing? I mean, people should understand that Marcel Wilson, he's the founder of one by one movement. He works in, in the trenches, uh, helping families and kids and just helping them make better choices and dealing with, you know, horrible stuff when people don't make the right choices. You know, the role of the grandmother and uncle, I got to keep coming back to that. Having dedicated family to actually, you know, hold this kid's hand. What about the, what about the, the guys that aren't, or aren't Banton? What about the guys that aren't like him? Just the average kid. Doesn't that model still apply in terms of making sure they get to school and that they're coming home from school, they're eating meals, doing their homework? Um, you know, is that something you work to in your work, uh, trying to find, family to model the better, better behavior, perhaps, and maybe where the kid is when you find them? Absolutely. And, you know, we encourage, uh, as you said, though, a lot, of, a lot of families, you know, there's, there's time, you know, time management is a big problem. Um, but what you do is you, tr- you know, it, you involve others, you know, if there's a grandmother, if there's uncles, if there's cousins that are positive uh, figures in their lives, you know, you got to utilize them. And uh, sometimes that's what my organization does. We kind of step in as that surrogate. We'll pick guys up and drop them off and make sure they're eating and, and whatnot. So, you know, sometimes it doesn't even have to be a blood relative. You know, if, yeah. you, if there's a yeah. kid in your area that you see has potential, you know, it may be a great investment to get involved in that in that young person's life and, and really just, uh, you know, support them in any way that, that you can. And, and, you know, you might be shocked by the results. So that's really what you're you're trying to build, right? Is you're trying to build a, an army of these um, step-in surrogates, if you will, to you know get kids through. A, you know, even if it means I know you have kid, people that walk kids home from school in neighborhoods where you know that might not be a safe thing to do. Um, how's that going? Are you is the recruiting process working for you, or are you still finding it difficult for people that want to jump in and, like you say, make that investment in some young person's life? Uh, it, it, it's going well, but I mean, it, it's always a slow process, man. There's there's so many variables and so many challenges that the public don't really think about or see that that kind of happen in the background. You know, um, agencies operating in silos. You know, funding not hitting the places that where it's supposed to be. The trickle is so slow. Um, finding people who have the time and want to put in the effort um, to, to to invest in in a young person especially when a young person is, you know, traumatized or damaged yep. and uh, yep. going through things, you know, they can be a little bit difficult at times and challenging. And it's really just getting people motivated and believing that this system works. But uh, uh, young Banton is, is a prime example. And, you know, hopefully he can uh, inspire others and not just guys to become athletes, but you know, the, the, the grandmothers and the uncles, hopefully they inspi- they're inspired by him and step up and maybe do the same kind of thing that uh, uh, was done for young uh, Manton. So, you know, um, 
how are you going to leverage? I mean, I, I don't want to, I want to use the term leverage, but I don't mean it in a creepy way. Um, how are you guys going to leverage, uh, you, Marcel, uh, and you, you and, uh, Louie and the team? You know, how are you guys going to leverage someone like this, uh, young man, Delano? Uh, to, I know he's already talked about in the article, it talks about him already thinking about things he wants to do for the neighborhood and hubs he can do and help in, in basketball programs. I, I assume you guys are going to be all over him to be some form of spokesperson, role model, uh, in the, even in, in the funding side of uh, the equation, helping raise money using him as, as leverage. Is that something that, you know, you guys are, are thinking about doing and something that his camp is comfortable with yet at this point? Absolutely. Absolutely, man. And, and, you know, as you know, the Toronto Raptors have been, uh, you know, doing, doing, doing quite a bit of uh, charitable work for, for a while now. And uh, we're definitely going to explore, explore that. And it makes me really happy, actually, that, you know, right off the bat in his rookie season, he's yeah. already thinking about giving back and extending his hand yeah. back to the community. Yeah, Amazing Amazing yeah, guy. I, I love it. Uh, before we let you go, real quick, uh, sports to the rescue, right? Once again, we see keeping kids busy with some form of athletic activity, whether it's basketball, you know, badminton, you know, skating, whatever, hockey. Um, you know, we're just, we don't talk enough about it in the public about getting kids in tenderloin areas more uh, equipped and more uh, making more things available to them uh, for the sports side of their life. Here we see how sports could really come to the rescue in a minute or so uh, or less. Um, you guys working on some of this stuff as well? Of course, man. Of course. And, you know, we, we use the, the sports outlet for, for many reasons. Um, one, of, one of the main you know, contributing factors that are positive is that it it it, it uh, ensures discipline. It it helps you to structure. You know, like planning, time management. Um, there's just so many pluses to it, and 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 especially just you know all overall physical health. Uh, as you were talking about earlier, you know, getting sleep, sleeping properly. You know, getting the right nutrition. All of those things play play a huge factor. And you know, he is an example. So it can be done. You can do it. They can do it. You know, invest in these kids, man. Marcel Wilson, good friend of mine. He is the uh, end, end of, the, of the show. He is the founder and uh, runs an organization called One by One Movement. Uh, they're in the trenches. If you want to volunteer, reach out to Marcel. He'll be glad to take your number and sign you up for something. Buddy, we'll have you back on again. Thanks for the chance to share with you. Hope you're well. And, uh, Lots of love and family, brother. We'll see you soon. When we come back uh, after break here, we're going to talk about mental health days. Don't solve the great resignation. Yeah, we're going to be talking about people leaving their jobs because you know what? They don't like working there anymore. No matter how much money you want to give them, they just don't want to work there anymore. When you come back, we're going to talk about that. Yona Bud at 640 Toronto. Now. Road to Recovery with Yona Bud continues only on 640 Toronto. Okay, everybody back on the bus. We had a chance to go use the bathroom, get yourself a snack. We've got another hour of the road on the road to recovery. So uh, buckle in and make sure you're safe and pay attention. Thank you for joining me. This is Yona Bud here and 640 Toronto. We're in the studio with Devon and Corey, and we thank you for joining us. And being a part of the show, we want to hear from you, 416-870-6400, because this only works when we share together. Uh, we want to talk about this new thing, this great resignation. Uh, should come as no surprise, right? It's long overdue. Um, 
People are equipping themselves, the talent wars, they say, equipping themselves with trendy workplace perks from beer, 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 beer on tap to mediation boosts and so on. People don't want that anymore. They're, they're looking for different things uh, in their employment. Um, and a lot of people are leaving if, in fact, uh, they're not getting what they want. 76% of the study of the respondents in this particular study says that mental health symptoms are not necessarily the cause of them leaving. Um, the great It's a reflection on the changing of values. Uh, we have a guest joining us this evening. She's a friend of the show and uh, just a wonderful guest. Her name is Paula Allen. Paula, thank you for joining us again this evening. Always a pleasure. Yeah, man. Um, so what's going on out there? This, uh, this, this resignation trail thing, it's, uh, we're hearing about it all the time. Uh, from your perspective, I know you help organizations. You are the global leader and senior vice president of research and, and research and total well-being in an organization called LifeWorks, and you help employers uh, improve the lives of their employees. What's going on? What are you, what are you hearing and what are you seeing? And give us a, a taste of what's happening. Well, we we actually saw signs of this emerging uh, way back in the in the in the summer of 2020. So, you know, we've been talking about it a lot in 2021, but the seeds started well before. And you know what we what we saw is that people were just starting to feel exhausted. I mean, this the pandemic has really been the tipping point for a number of people, and you're having to deal with so much. There's change, there's uncertainty, uh, there's there's many practical things that you have to figure out that you didn't before, and that's on top of everything else that everyone is always dealing with and had been dealing with before. So that level of exhaustion was fairly significant and people really started to evaluate, how am I going to get out of this? You know, what do I do to support myself? But also, do I need to do something to change my environment? So the seeds of this and the consideration of resigning have been really in our minds for about a year. 76% of the the people in this study go on to say, uh, Paula, that... um, 36% 36% of them, oh, excuse me, 76% sh- uh, shared at least one symptom of mental health, 36% um, symptoms that have culminated over the last 5 to 12 months. Uh, they're finding that they're declining, uh, their mental health is declining. 2.7% times uh, were, were more, two, they, the, their mental health were 2.7 times more likely to be satisfied with their jobs, people who are supported by their employers. What are employers doing to reverse this thing. I know we t- we did a show a while ago on something called stay interviews. Uh, I think we did it a couple of weeks ago. And this whole thing about stay interviews and kind of sitting down with your staff and, you know, finding out why they want to stay there as opposed to why they want to leave. Is this really a thing? Uh, that That is something that people are, are, are doing. There's a number of things that employers are contemplating, but really at the core of it, we have very basic human needs. You know, you need to feel value. You need to feel recognized for what you're doing. You really need to feel that the environment that you're in is one that really does care about your well-being. Like when you're when you're thinking about the you know very basic things, nobody wants to be in a culture or around other people who do don't care about them or don't care whether they're strong or weak or 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 where they feel afraid to be themselves. Nobody wants to be in a situation where you're working hard, and all of us have been working hard. Like even if the complexity of our work hasn't changed over this pandemic, everything is harder uh, to 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 get accomplished, and 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 that has been a drain on people. So the need for recognition, the need to feel validated, is higher than it's ever been. So these are very fundamental things that are causing people to reevalu- re- reevaluate. 
Yeah, there's the, the article goes on to say that it's more of a reflection of changing values, exactly what you're mm-hmm. saying. People, people are starting to recognize that, you know, I could work somewhere else. And, you know, I, I even have a, I have a couple of patients that have made, made some changes in their employment. And I got a couple that are actually working, um, making a little less money, but moved out of the city and their cost of living is significantly less. So at the end of the day, they have more disposable income, more money left at the end of the month. Um, so they're realizing that the value of, you know, being downtown and rushing to work and so on uh, for the extra, you know, hundred bucks a week, for example, may not be worth it. Um, is this something? You said that this is kind of happening prior to the pandemic, but I think now uh, maybe it's exasperated because we, we have this work-at-home model uh, that some people are gravitating to, and um, they're realizing they can work from you know Perry Sound and still get the job done. Yeah, what the pandemic has done is it sort of um, accelerated a lot of opportunities, but it's also, I think, and this is the thing that's really made the difference, it's had people um, in a state where your your normal busyness wasn't there. You know, you might be busy, you might be doing work, but you don't have the same distractions that you did because we were locked down for a period of time. So there's really some opportunity to think. And I've heard many people say in different words, it almost feels like there's been, you know, months and months where that we've lost, like it hasn't been the way that we wanted to curate our lives. And when you have that feeling that you might have missed some time, you know, whether rightly or wrongly way, a way to look at it, but when you have that feeling, you don't want to miss any more. You really want to make sure that the, the months going forward and the years going forward are the way that you want them to be as much and to the extent possible. So your job is working with employers for the most part, correct? It is. And the okay. work that we do actually supports employees and their families. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but employers so, are the ones who hire us. Okay. So what are you telling employers in, in 2021? Here we are in October 2021. It's almost, by the way, it's almost Halloween. I hope you have your costume. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a week away, you know. Um, but um, the uh, what, what do you – what? Give me, give me sort of the top – four or five tips that uh, employers that might be listening um, can start looking at maybe implementing in their workplace? Sure. There's a few things, but they really fit into two big buckets. You know, one is, um, you know, people do need support and, and employers have the ability to, to get, you know, enable resources. There's benefits, there's programs, you know, when, when everybody has a difficult time at some point in time, and these so- services are really meaningful. So support with addiction, support with mental health issues, support with family contra- uh, con- conflict, uh, practical support, you know, uh, uh, financial consultations, like all of these things are really meaningful. So the first bucket is make sure that you have the extent that you can those services and that you communicate them so your employees know about them. The other bucket is what we're talking about, uh, what we were talking about just recently, which is people have basic human needs in terms of the environment that they're in and how they spend their time. So focus on that. You know, make sure that people do feel valued. Like, why would you have somebody in your organization if they're not valued? But sometimes we take people for granted. Train your managers. You know, people need to um, have a managers that support that culture of well-being, you know, know how to step in when things are difficult, but also create a space that's psychologically safe. And and all of these things, you know, there's the, the mental health days, there's mental health weeks that some organizations are, are shutting down. 
I have no issue with that at all, as long as it's not the only thing. It's a wonderful way to show that you care, but it's not. it can't be the only thing because that day, that week will go away pretty fast if you don't, if you don't focus on the other two, uh, two things, your culture and your services. Yeah, I remember when I was at another network, they have something called Let's Talk Day. Uh, I won't use their name. And uh, they have a Let's Talk Day, but uh, I think four or five days after Let's Talk Day, they ushered about 400 people out of the building. Um, so, you know, it's you kind of just wonder, you know, where it's worth where the investment. In. But, it, you know, companies need to understand that it's worth the investment, right? And, and many of them may actually have services or funds available in their in their uh, in their support, uh, in their in their perk program or their their um, benefit program, if you will. Uh, to, to, to get people the help that they need. Most don't realize that this is something that's probably built into their, into their investment anyway. And if not, it probably should be, right? Without question. And, and, it, and it does benefit the employer as well. So, you know, when people feel their best, when people know that they have support if they have a difficult time, then their productivity goes up as well. It has yeah. to, yeah. Like, well, you know. Yeah. When you when you are feeling um, supported, uh, the ability for you to do more and do better is significant. And we've actually found that people's sense of belonging goes up, and with that sense of belonging, so does measurable productivity. You know, one thing we say to uh, I say to all my patients as it relates to relationships. Uh, I tell them all the time, I'm sure this is something familiar to you. If you're in a relationship that doesn't make you feel good about yourself, you probably shouldn't be in that relationship. Um, one would say the same thing about work. If you're on a job, uh, working a job, and listen, not everybody can listen. Don't get me wrong. We have a, you know thousands and thousands of listeners. Lots of people you know, are, are in a situation where they really can't uh, afford to make the move at this time. Maybe we're giving them some, some information to think about right now, but can't really. So a lot of people are kind of stuck, if you will, where they are. Um, but you know, what, what can someone do, uh, in a work environment where, you know, it may not be set up for their, for their wellness, but they're kind of stuck there because they need the, they need the paycheck. Uh, what can an employer or an employee do in, in an environment like that? Well, I think very similar to the a relationship, you know, sometimes we have overwhelming feelings that things are not good and, and it feels overwhelming because you haven't identified what it is that's making you feel that way. So I would pause. And really try to pinpoint what it is that's making you feel uncomfortable, what it is that's making you feel like you're not being supported. The more you can identify what that is, the more there's an opportunity to have a conversation if a conversation is possible with your with your 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 supervisor or to to really get some coaching on how to deal with the situation a little bit differently. So again, almost nothing, almost no situations are all good or all bad. But if you can focus on the things that are are positive, but also identify the things that are problematic, you're more likely to be able to compartmentalize them. You're all also more likely to be able to solve problem solve around them. And then, as soon as you are able, unless you're able to resolve it, then I would take your other piece of advice. If you continue to feel that you are not doing well in an environment, then, then look for opportunities to change when that's possible. We're talking to Paula Allen. She's the global leader and senior vice president of research and total well-being at LifeWorks, good friend of the show, and just an excellent guest. Thank you so much for joining us, Paula. We will definitely have you on as we start to look at what this, resigna this great resignation really looks like 
uh, as we get closer to uh, the holiday season, I'm sure there'll be stuff to have you come back and chat about. Plus, I want to get a chance to wish you happy holidays. So we'll definitely be talking <laughs> again, again really soon. Paula Allen, Global Leader, Senior Vice President at LifeWorks. If you're a business and you need some support, these are the folks you need to call uh, to get some advice on doing it the right way. When we come back, we're going to talk about the dark side of social media. Man, we're hearing about it everywhere, you know, how it's affecting kids, how it's affecting our lives. But... Are you stopping using it? I don't think so. We'll be right back. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hang on a second. Just checking my, uh, just checking my Instagram feed. Hang on. I'll be right back with you. Hang on. And, and let me check my Facebook. Okay. Anything going on at LinkedIn? I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just give me a minute here. Okay. So I, I've just, I'm just kidding. I'm not on my phone checking my social media. I'm just trying to make a point. We're here to talk about uh, the impact of a social media, Facebook, Instagram, that kind of stuff. We know what's going on because we're hearing about it in the news. There was quote unquote whistleblowers, people coming out talking about uh, what's going on there, sharing stuff from the inside. Um, you know, there's uh, a lot of people out there making uh, certain comments about. Uh, a, pro, a, pro, a platform, if you will, that allows teenagers to po- push, you know, post photographs of themselves. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's just not working for kids for sure. This whole Instagram, TikTok and so on. Facebook, I think, is old school. They're not using it much anymore. Um, you know, so where are we with all this? That's really the question. 416-870-6400. Are you able to put your stuff down? You find that you're constantly checking your feed just to see what's out there. Give us a call. Let me know what's going on with you. Any experiences related to uh, to your social media, whether it's something you just can't live without. Uh, it's where you get all your info, maybe. That's where you're getting all of your opinions and information about stuff. Um, maybe not the most reliable. But anyway, um, the study goes on or the, the, the article goes on to talk about the negative impact. We make body image issues worse. Facebook knows that. We make body image wor- uh, worse uh, for one in every thirteen, one in every three teen girls. The company's researchers said, leaving us to wonder about the impact of our uh, mindless scrolling. Uh, th- despite these findings, the head of Instagram, his name is Adam Masseri, dismissed the severity of the issue, telling reporters that ex- existing research suggested that the app's effects on teens were quite small. Like, really? Are you kidding me? I got five kids in my practice right now that have real bullying issues around social media. Three of them want to kill themselves. That's just me. I'm one little guy. Literally, I'm a little guy. No, but I'm just one guy, one therapist, right, with a team of other people, but just one therapist, if you will. And I'm seeing, you know, a bunch of kids in my practice that are having issues. And the numbers that we see are telling a much different story. On the Facebook internal message board, 32% of adolescent girls believe Instagram has negatively impacted their body image and self-esteem. That's not it. Among teenagers who reported suicidal thoughts, 13% of them, these were British users, and 6% of American users traced this desire to kill themselves back to Instagram. Instagram generates more than $100 billion, yes, $100 billion a year in, in revenue. And the majority of its users are under the age of 22. Matter of fact, a quarter, not a majority, the more than a quarter, 25% or so of their users are under the age of 22. And, you know, and Zuckerberg knows this, that he's got actually, he's got some of his staff have come out to, to, to talk about it and, and make, and make comments about what's going on, whistleblowers, if you will. 
but we're still using the platform. Everyone's still using the platform. Kids are still using the platform. You know, there's people out there that still smoke, even though they know it kills them. There's people out there doing bad things because they know it's not good for them, but they do it anyway. There's people out there that drive around without seatbelts, even though they know it's not safe. The problem that we're facing right now is that we know that these technologies, if not used properly, and I don't know what properly even looks like, but for the most part, we're having too intimate a relationship with our technology applications and not enough with our direct relationships with people face-to-face. I'm going to bring Devon on. He's uh, uh, a young man in his 20s and uh, has experience with, I'm sure, his own social media, and uh, he's working with us tonight. Devon, thank you for getting on the other side of the microphone for this. Um, you use social media, right? Yep, absolutely. What app, What apps mostly? Uh, pretty much all of them. I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of guilty of using Facebook and Instagram, sometimes Twitter, but mainly Facebook and Instagram on a daily basis. And so you're in your mid to late 20s. How long do you think you've been kind of glued to your technology? Ooh, uh, quite a while. I'm not going to lie. Like, I guess uh, on a in a daily sense, like I could be on social media for like a good like two, three hours without knowing it. And, and I think the crazy thing is, is just that we can get so addicted to uh, social media of any sort just because you want to kind of get this escape or at least some semblance of an escape from reality. Uh, but at the same time, what I find myself doing, I think, is comparing myself a lot to how other people's lives are. And I'm like, yeah. oh, man, I wish I could have yeah. that sort of thing, X and Y. Yeah. And and I think it kind of is interesting that you brought up those stats about um, Instagram raking in $100 billion a year. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, you know what? People are just trying to just latch on to something that they might not be able to have or it's just so addictive that that's what they want. They want you to spend so much time on Instagram, liking things and going through different things just to capture your attention. You know, but, you know, if it, like you said, if you look at, you know, the, uh, the Instagram stuff that's out there, you know, my, my son, he's in his mid-20s, about your age, uh, one of my boys, you know, he follows a couple of people and, you know, he, you know, he fortunately he's got his, his act together. But, you know, he follows guys that are out there with, you know, the hottest girls, the fastest cars, the biggest cribs, you know, the biggest apart, you know, homes, you're traveling everywhere. And, you know, and, and most of these guys were really not, you know, business people who have now sold their business and living uh, the life of Riley, so to speak. So what we're seeing here is, like you said, you know, I compare myself to others, uh, but you got to walk away from that. If you don't have the two cars and the great chicks and the beautiful apartment or home, you got to walk away going, right. hey, man, what's wrong with me, right? Exactly. Yeah. And th- and that's the one thing. Sometimes you begin to feel, uh, you think you begin to think less of yourself and you're like, oh, man, like, you know, why can I be like that person that has uh, that girl or uh, has that nice car and, and whatnot? And I think, you know, what it prevents us from being grateful for the things that we do have in our lives. And I think with social media, sometimes it's just good to have a little break from it or a fast, if you will, just to really acknowledge that, you know what, like I don't need to rely on this stuff to have a sense of escape or to feel complete. It's just something for entertainment, but we should take it very lightly. Uh, we're talking to Devon. He's uh, one of the producers working with me tonight and uh, uh, kind enough to jump on the other side of the microphone. Thanks, brother. Uh, but I, I, what, one thing he said is I loved it. Maybe something like a fast. Like, it's, what a great, a technology fast. Okay, on Thursdays, one Thursday a month, we're all having a technology fast, right? Lots of people, ta- you know, fast on the food that they eat and drink and whatever, you know, give themselves a cleanse. Let's go for this technology cleanse because this too much stuff, not good for us, especially for kids. 
young people for sure. And, and, you know, adults alike, you know, I know a lot of people are just glued to their screens and if they, if they miss something on Facebook or they miss a birthday that somebody posted, they really feel like they're left out. Like, come on, man, let's get back to the old days of knocking on doors, picking up a phone, calling our friends and say, Hey, what's up? Anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk about some more stuff here. We've got a guest that's going to join us. We're going to talk about the impact of this pandemic on our friends in blue. Yes, the people that save our lives and rescue us when we're in trouble, they're also in trouble. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that with one of the experts that deals with uh, the folks in blue and the trauma related to that job. Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us here on the Road to Recovery. We're going to be joined shortly here by our guest. Uh, we're talking about the impact of mental health on officer retention and what leaders can do to turn this tide around. If you heard what we were talking about earlier with Paula uh, uh, from uh, LifeWorks, we were talking about the retention of employees, uh, generally speaking. Uh, especially true over the last 18 months, the stress has had a terrible impact on civil uh, civil workers, including protest, you know, as a result of protesters and law enforcement issues and so on. There's a survey recently done that an overall 18% increase in the resignation, according to police officers, resignation in 2020 to 2021 compared to 2019, 20, and 20, uh, including an astonishing 45% increase in the retirement rate. Uh, and we're talking, this is compounding the issues of officer morale and mental health as fewer officers and less experienced officers are now dealing with increased pressure and responsibility. We're joined this evening with uh, by Crystal Jones. She's the president of Toronto Beyond the Blue. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening, Crystal. And uh, how you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate any opportunity to talk about our, the mental health of our members. So, well, you're at the right place. And if you if you're not careful, you're going to end up on the list, and it's going to mean we're going to have you back on again. So, if you like it too much, we're going to we're going to we're going to scoop you up and use you again. So, try not to have so much fun, okay? I'll try my best. <laughs> okay, uh, Crystal, tell us. Start off by telling us a little bit about um, Toronto Beyond the Blue uh, or the organization Beyond Blue. Yeah, absolutely. So, Toronto Beyond the Blue was founded in 2017 by myself and Dilnez Garda. Um, we were born on the back of a suicide. So Dell's brother, Darius Garda, died by suicide in uh, February of 2016. And, uh, you know, I had my own reasons for wanting this, but our focus has always been on family wellness and member wellness. And uh, we are a registered not-for-profit and we are a charitable organization with charitable status. So um, everything that we do, we look at uh, implementing programming that supports police service members and their families. Uh, we are constantly running campaigns that advocate for their mental health and normalize those conversations surrounding the stigmas that they face. Um, and we also run a very successful peer support program uh, that we're very proud of. And we're a sister chapter of um, another organization that I'm the, the vice president for, which is Canada Beyond the Blue. Um, because Toronto was so successful in our model, it caught on very quickly because it, was a, uh, it wasn't a unique need to just Toronto police families. It was a very much um, a Canada-wide need. Yeah, so sure. we have a number of chapters throughout Canada. Amazing. So um, go backwards a little bit, if you don't mind. Uh, the person who lost their lives to suicide, this was an officer? Yes, Darius was a Toronto police officer. 
and your experiences. You are or were a police officer or affected by someone who was a police officer? So my spouse is a current Toronto police officer. He's been with okay. the service for 24 years. Yep. Okay. And how's he doing? Or she doing? Uh, well, he's say. doing well. Yeah, he's doing well. He's, um, you know, he has definitely experienced, you know, the burnout and the operational stress. He was primary response um, for a number of years. So he he definitely um, got to experience the, the global pandemic on the front line. Um, and, you know, his mental health did somewhat uh, become impacted, but I will say a significant amount of burnout is what we were seeing um, with our members. Yeah, I was going to ask you what's happening with them. And, you know, we, we people don't understand, uh, you know, I've been, uh, you know, not so much these days since the beginning of the pandemic, but I've been, you know, I've been on the street for over 40 years and uh, doing, uh, you know, doing the kind of work I do. And police officers uh, are a huge part of the work I do in terms of saving lives and finding missing kids and getting people off the off the street and into the help that they need. Uh, so I'm a big, big supporter of, of policing. Um, and I'm seeing with my friends, like I got a bunch of buddies that are in uniform, male and female, a bunch of people that are in uniform. And, and they're, you know, a lot of them are taking a little more leave time. A couple of friends of mine are taking some extended leave time. Um, they're just, you know, they're just tired of, you know, being spit at and yelled at and screamed at and, you know, you know, quote unquote, dumped on, um, you know, which I guess was part of the job maybe all along. But somehow during this pandemic and protesting and stuff, people think it's okay to, to let their, you know, we have a lot of people, a lot of you know, citizens out there that are feeling, you know, miserable and they don't like their lives and they're, you know, especially during the lockdown periods. So they would dump on, you know, people like police officers and mailmen and mail people. Um, so mm-hmm. we're, I think your folks are seeing, you know, certainly my friends are seeing um, a harder day. It's just harder to get up to go to work every day because it's just it's not as much fun anymore. Yeah. And I, I want to say, you know, a lot of these in, incidents where they're being spit at and, and treated in a very inhumane way. Uh, it's not new to our <laughs> to our families. Uh, right. We are very much conscious that. um you know, if you're a police officer or related to a police officer that, you know, we always get those questions that are very intrusive and inappropriate. And then a lot of the time people are always very quick to tell you about their worst experience they ever had yeah. uh, without, you know, self-reflection and appreciating, you know, how they could have contributed to that incident. But, um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that we're seeing with the protests there's a lot of police officers who actually understand why, you know, small business owners are upset or um, different things like that. And it's really frustrating because they get caught between a rock and a hard place where they need to enforce um, the rules and the laws. But a lot of them feel for these people. And it's, um, it's definitely, you know, I think we're really going to start to see like a lot more moral injuries coming from coming out of this pandemic. Um, as well, also alongside post-traumatic stress and other operational stress injuries, but it's definitely uh, a very challenging time to be in law enforcement or really just any frontline worker at the beginning of the pandemic, they were all heroes. And now, you know, with mandatory vaccines and things like that, and people saying that it's unconstitutional, um, there is a lot of villainizing now of police and, and other frontline workers. So it's, it's very unfortunate. 
Uh, I treat and have treated uh, for years frontline workers, uh, mostly around their PTSD. Many drink too much or use other drugs to deal with injury issues and just never stop. Um, the post-traumatic stress related to a police officer, the average cop on the street these days responding to overdoses and these, the situation with uh, fentanyl and, and street drugs and so on, um, I know just from the few that I deal with that the, 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 the level of post-traumatic stress as it relates to watching people die as a result of using bad drugs it's just overwhelming. I have a couple of buddies of mine who've, you know, in the last year or so have, you know, attempt, attended at least a dozen where young people, you know, young enough, you know, young people have lost their lives due to some form of dirty drug overdose. Um, and, I, and, and just one of those situations is enough to end you, put you in therapy. What kind of support are we providing? And in the old days, cops used to be told, you know, my old time coppers, the retired guys used to tell me, you know, you have a bad day at the office, you go home and you grab yourself a Mickey, you drink it off and you come to work the next day. That's how they dealt with mental health back in the day. And I'm not, you know, throwing throwing uh, negative things at anybody here. But so what supports are now in place for these, these uh, men and women who are, you know, really putting their lives on the line, both physically, emotionally, and, and mentally uh, to try to get us uh, to keep us in a safe place. What supports are in place that you're, that you're aware of and are they actually working? Um, so it, this, this is always going to be um, kind of like a point of contention for like for even just Toronto police. Cause that is my, my, go that I really focus on. Um, The service does have uh, resources available to them. They have their wellness units. They have uh, um, their ESAP services. Uh, You know, there is some peer support groups. Internally within our organization, we have been successful because we are standalone and at arm's length. There is a significant amount of mistrust with police officers um, uh, towards the service. And uh, I don't know how confident they all are in the um, how helpful the resources that are being offered. And I know some of them worry that they're not confidential. And, you know, so we're, we're constantly combating, like, while these things exist, people are just not taking advantage of them because they don't right. trust the process. Ah, uh, there you go. There you go. Right. And we're constantly advocating, like, for me, I always say to members when they call our peer support line or they just connect directly, um, you know, we have vetted professionals on our website and I always kind of, you know, take a brief understanding of what they're looking for and they need and recommend several different, you know, skilled professionals that we've vetted. And and it seems to be very effective. Um, So therapy is always one of the best things that we we offer, but then we also have our own in-house peer support. And I, I cannot for anyone who's listening, how valuable peer support is just as oh, a tool and a resource. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, these things exist. We're just really combating the, the whole mistrust and low morale of, of members. And, you know, my concerns always come because Toronto Police has experienced a number of, of suicides um, over the past few years. And we're always looking at ways that we can implement positive change by partnering with the service and the association um, that is, you know, based on empirical evidence that would support what we're trying to achieve. Right. And sometimes it's not received at all. Uh, It falls on deaf ears and we're still not seeing the appropriate changes be made. Um, But the message is, is we're always available to the members and we're always, 
you know, ready to work and, and do, do what needs to be done uh, for their family and for their own mental health. We have a minute left. I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you something in terms of uh, uh, in terms of peer support um, and and so on. It's 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 the the question is really using getting to someone who they can trust, right? Um, mm-hmm. So obviously you're you're creating a an environment that makes it easy for people to access the help of of those that may not be directly associated with the police service. What's the union doing? What's the police? I mean, I would hope that a bunch of your money comes from that union. Uh, So the union has supported us in the past. Um, They have been allies, you know, as as much as they can be. Um, And we just continue to do what we need to do to ensure. So we do a lot of our own fundraising to pay for these uh, resources and support. We don't currently have any agreement with the Toronto Police Association in future funding. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, since John Reed has been reelected, that that conversation will be open for negotiation uh, when I present him with another document. So, so uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We're just running out of time. I want you to know that you should reach out to me if you wish to. Um, I would like to volunteer my services in some way um, and some of the reach that I have perhaps in the in the world that might help you get some funding. So please feel free to reach out to me. I'd like to, to help in some way offline uh, moving forward. So love to love to connect with you to do that. Uh, we're talking to Crystal Jones. She's the president of Toronto uh, Beyond the Blue. She's the uh, spouse of an uh, active police officer um, doing wonderful, wonderful, thankless work. Um, truly an angel. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, what you should do is get a hold of Beyond the Blue and uh, donate something. Give them some money. Send them a hundred bucks. If everybody does that, they'll have tons of money. We can help our police officers and their families so they come home at the the end of the day and don't feel like they want to jump off a bridge or hang themselves. Thank you again, Crystal. When we come back, we're going to talk about starting therapy. Yep. And here's a little bit of a list and some tips on how to do that the right way. Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Holy smokes, can you believe it? Two hours have gone by just like it started yesterday. So we're getting ready to pull the bus over. we got a little bit left on the road here, and then we're going to pull into the terminal, let everybody off, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Uh, thanks for joining me. I'm Yona here, and we are uh, pleased that you were able to join us this evening. Tips for starting and getting the most out of therapy. When I, uh, someone, I get a lot of calls through the week. People want to do therapy with me and my team. Um, they, we, we, I do, I do a vetting process. I get on the phone. I spend at least a half hour, 45 minutes at no charge. And we talk about, um, their situation and I get a feel for whether I'm a good fit for them and whether in fact they're a good fit for me. It also helps us determine their needs, right? What do they need? What do you, what do you, what do you need a therapist for? And, uh, am I the right guy? Maybe I'm not. Maybe I need to see someone else on my team or someone that, isn't directly associated with me and uh, you never really know, right? So you need to determine your needs. This is kind of a list of some things we can do here quickly. Uh, we, we need to determine your needs when, you know, you need to understand what you're looking for out of therapy. So make a list of your goals, such as, you know, maybe processing trauma or grief, uh, acquiring tools to cope with your anxiety, uh, issues around relationships, whatever, whatever you got going on, make that list so that you and your therapist can sit or potential therapist can sit down and, and, and look at those together and see if in fact, they're the right person. They may, not, they may not specialize in that kind of stuff, and you may need someone else. Picking a therapist is really a big part of it, making sure that you connect. 
When I meet somebody for the first time, we're looking to see if we can establish rapport. Whether we click is the term I would use. Do we click? Do we get along? Uh, do you feel me? My style? My style may not work for everybody. Sometimes I can be a little aggressive. I can be a little loud, maybe um, a little pushy. doesn't really work for everybody, but certainly 80% of the people that we see do well. So for some of those, it certainly works. But it may not be a good fit for someone else. You may be looking for someone who has better, more experience with LGBTQ stuff, for example, or anti-racism issues, or someone that's you know, more connected in your faith or your, or your culture. You know, so you're, pick someone who's going to work for you. And, and, and that relationship has to work for you. And see if they offer a free consultation like we do, right? Uh, and if they do, take them up on it. Maybe try a few until you get that right feeling, until you get that feeling that, yeah, man, I, I connect with this person. It kind of works, right? Take some time to settle in on that relationship. It's like any other relationship, right? So it takes time to get to know each other. and takes time to get comfortable enough that you actually want to hold hands, right? So your first session maybe, and I'm sort of, I'm saying that not in in direct uh, in a direct way, but to, to a point where you're at a relationship where you're more comfortable, so to speak, right? Your first session may be overwhelmingly emotional, by the way, so be prepared. Uh, if you've been holding stuff in for a long time, you tend to find somebody you connect with, you're probably going to dump a lot quickly. So be prepared for that. Make sure that you're dealing with a therapist that, you know, sends you out, as they say, zipped up. Um, you know, I, I try to leave everybody I'm working with that day, that moment, that, that session with some strategy, some skills, some tool they can use immediately. I'm not the kind of guy that really likes to leave people hanging off their emotions and crying and, you know, okay, we'll see you next week. Time's up. Uh, we try to make sure that they have what they need, but that's what you should, that's what you should look for. Someone who's going to zip up the session and make sure you leave with something and not feeling completely, uh, completely lost. Uh, engage with your therapist, right? Talk with them, talk with them, share with them. Don't be afraid. They're strangers for the most part. And they're bound, if they're, you're dealing with, uh, you know, reliable, um, you know, trained and uh, properly uh, certified people, that they have, you know, organizations to respond, to report to if they're not being confidential. So you can trust them, right? For the most part, you find one that you like, you should be able to trust them enough that you can share. Um, be open. You have to have, you know, stuff to talk about when you go into a therapy session, so keep a little notebook on on hand and then write stuff down. You know, I want to talk to my therapist about this, and I want to talk to my therapist about that. Oh my God, I can hardly wait to tell them about this. And if they only knew, right? So keep keep those notes so that you can share with your therapist. Practice the things that you learn in therapy between the sessions, right? You have to do the work. The only way therapy works, I don't care how good a therapist is or not. Uh, the most part, for the most part, even great therapists can only do good job. If the person that they're working with is motivated, I only deal with, by the way, I only deal with people that are motivated and actually want help. If not, I really can't do well, so I don't really want to bother. I don't mean that in a bother kind of way, but I don't want to waste their time, money, and my time uh, on uh, on working with people who really just don't want to be there. So you got to be ready to rumble, right? You got to be ready to do this. And if you're going to be doing it, take it seriously. Practice the stuff you're working on. You know, most therapists will give you things to do in between sessions. Do them like homework, right? You're not looking to pass, but what you're looking to do is get a better life. So going to therapy is to get you a better life. So do the homework. Do the stuff you need to do. Um, create a buffer, right? Create a buffer. Make sure that you you have some, uh, you may have some residual feelings, emotions, and thoughts after a session. So give yourself some space. I, I, I won't, you know, in the virtual world that we're in right now, um, I see people in their homes or in their offices. I will not deal with people that are in their cars and driving home because they could potentially be very upset. So uh, none of this pull over to the side of the road and I'm going to dial in with Yona and do a session. So give yourself some space. Maybe you want to go for a walk after the session. 
Maybe you want to be doing the session outside in a place that makes you feel good and, and comfortable because uh, you don't know what's going to come out of it. And chances are, if you're doing a good job in therapy, things are going to get un- un- unrooted and you're going to find some stuff that you know may have been put away for a while in the back of your mind or in your subconscious, and it will come up and it will uh, it will grate on you if you if you let it. So uh, give yourself some space after therapy. Show on your terms. So the experts recommend finding a trusted friend or family that you can count on to help to process your therapy with your help you process your therapy experiences. So someone that you really know that you can trust, make sure you include them in the process so that they're there to help you. Right? Expect up and down ups and downs through the through your therapy. You're going to have good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks. Um, but the bad weeks are the ones you grow from, right? And that's how you get the, the the skills and strategies that you need to be healthy going forward. And the last but not least, celebrate your achievements, man. Pat yourself on the back. Buy yourself something cool. Get a candy bar, a milkshake, a, you know, a, a, a burger if you're if that's a treat for you. Celebrate the successes that you make in therapy. Celebrate the successes you achieve along the way. We don't do that enough. Not a, not enough patting ourselves on the back with attaboy billies, right? We got to give ourselves our own attaboy billy, our own uh, way to go, Sarah, right? We need to do that for ourselves. So that's what you're looking for. If you're looking for a therapist and you're looking for some things that you can do and and some ways to kind of make that form fit for you, these are kind of the tips that I would suggest you pay attention to and maybe uh, use going forward. Next week, we've got a whole nother show, another couple hours of more cool stuff to share. We want you to be on the road to recover with us. Uh, the bus leaves at 9 o'clock next week, actually 9.05 if you're a few minutes late. Uh, so jump on, and uh, let's do another tour around and see where we end up. Uh, yeah, I love you, man. You're the best audience ever. You guys are great. Um, thank you for making my Saturday evening. I hope I helped you a little bit with yours. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your week. Make it count. Hug the one you're with. Love the people next to you. Show that you care. Be a little understanding, a little helpful, and just, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. Give yourselves a break. We'll see you next week. Have a great one. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.